Our sermon this morning is entitled, Suffering, Persecution, and the Return of Christ. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 28. Give me just a moment while I turn there as well. Luke chapter 21, verse 5, you can find it on page 827 of your Bible if you're using a pew Bible. So, turn there or look on on the screen. Uh, We are going to talk this morning about, as as the title indicates, about suffering and persecution and how they are just normal, should be expected you know, parts of the, of the Christian life, particularly now and even more so as we inch closer to the return of Christ. So uh, another crowd pleaser, another, uh, last week we talked about money, no one came back, and so this week we're going to talk about suffering, and I expect that maybe even less of us will come back. Luke 21 is like, it's like murderer's row for an expositional preacher, right? It's like, um, or if you if you like golf instead of instead of baseball, it's like Amen Corner, on and uh, at the Masters. It's like a tough a tough set of texts that uh, are here, so we can't really avoid them. We can't really get around them, but they're hard to they're hard to preach and they're they're hard to hear. They're hard to receive, um, but uh, they are as as much as they're you know maybe unpleasant to hear, to think about money and God's, uh, you know, call on my life to be generous like we looked at last week or suffering and God's call on my life to endure and experience and persevere through suffering. Uh, they are, um, you know, they are absolutely unavoidably relevant for our lives because we all have money. Like we, we all have to earn money and spend money and figure out what to do with our money, how to be good stewards of our money. And we all suffer, right? We all, uh, we all experience pain and hardship and betrayal and suffering and difficulty in this life. And so we need to know how to steward our money and we need to know how to persevere through suffering and persecution and these kinds of things. And so Luke 21 might not be super pleasant, uh, might not be our favorite text to look at, but they are altogether relevant and necessary for us to read. So it's a lengthy, lengthy, uh, you know, passage this morning. So get, get comfortable about 23 verses or so. I'm going to read through it and then pray. And then we'll, we'll dive right in. It says, and while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. That will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but then the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. 
Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee out to the mountains. And let those who are inside the city depart. And let those who are out in the country, let them not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming into the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to give us ears to hear this morning. We ask you to meet us here. To quiet our hearts, to speak to our hearts, to humble us, and to help us to to grow. Lord, we ask that you would position us as your people. Strengthen us. uh, Help us to persevere through suffering for the glory of your name and for our eternal joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, long text. Let's just, let's just uh, dive right in. Verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. This is G- Jesus is teaching in the temple courts. He's been doing that really ever since he arrived in Jerusalem. Just kind of goes day after day. He's teaching in the temple courts about the kingdom of God and theology and money and everything else. And apparently this, as he's teaching now, some people are distracted by the extravagant, ornate, fancy, uh, you know, beautiful temple that they are standing right beside. The temple was this massive structure. It was the heart and soul of Jerusalem, which itself was the heart and soul of, uh, of Israel. The first temple was built by Solomon, right? So, uh, uh, Israel comes out of Egypt, enters the promised land. Their first great King is David. David defeats all of these enemies, expands the borders of the kingdom, brings peace and prosperity for all of the people. He builds this huge palace for himself, but he doesn't build a temple. You can read about all of that with King David in First and Second Samuel. Um, and uh, after King David is his son Solomon, who picks up where David left off. And he is the one who builds this huge temple. Finest materials, big, beautiful, ornate structure. You can read about that in First Kings 1 through 8. Uh, in 586 B.C., a few centuries later, the Babylonians invade Jerusalem and send the people into exile. You can read about that in Second Kings 24 through 25. Then in 538 B.C., about about 50 years later, 
Israel begins the long process of kind of re-entering the the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple that was destroyed by the, the Babylonians. And you can read about that in the book of Ezra. So you can kind of watch this story unfold throughout the Old Testament. Centuries later, in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the second temple, which was rebuilt by Ezra and his contemporaries, is, is uh, renovated. And, and expansions are made on it by King Herod, the guy that we see in the Gospels. Um, and so King Herod does this massive uh, renovation. He over, overhauls the entire structure, doubles it in size, goes from, you know, I don't know, uh, 15 to 20 acres to uh, almost 40 acres, right? This huge footprint uh, builds it super tall, 150 feet tall at its highest point. Hundreds of tons of limestone were brought in to construct this building. All kinds of, you know, gold and fancy materials uh, inside of it. It was massive. It was incredible. It was spectacular, kind of a take your breath away kind of building. But it's not just physical, Right, so it was physically impressive, but it was also, it was where the, the Holy of Holies was, which is where God uh, dwelled on earth with his people. It's where sacrifices were offered to appease the wrath of God so that the people of God could be reconciled to God. All of these like spiritually weighty things happen at the temple. It was the center of religious life, cultural life, social life, political life. It's like the, the temple in the first century would be like... Uh, like a church combined with a shopping mall, combined with Disney World, combined with the White House, combined with like the Taj Mahal, you know, some, it was like all of these kind of elements of, of culture and it's kind of all, all bundled into to one. That's the temple. So Jesus sees these people looking at the temple and they're impressed by it. And he says, as for these things that you see, this temple that you're looking at, The days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You look around at the temple, you're impressed by it. It's not going, like it is going, it's going to be destroyed. I hate to break it to you, but this temple that you are, that you love and that you kind of, uh, you know, see as a security blanket for you and your people is going to be reduced to rubble. Which is true. That happened, right? In, in 70 AD, uh, the country, the, the Roman army besieged the city of Jerusalem. Uh, kind of attacked it, captured it, destroyed the temple. Some of what, some of what we see in, in passages like this in, um, you know, uh, Luke 21, they kind of are, there's some ambiguity as to whether or not, like what, is it talking about the, the end, the last things? Is it talking about the end times when Jesus comes back? Or is it talking about something that has happened already? Something that's kind of happened already in history? And there's, there's kind of a, th- those are both true, right? Um, the, some, some of these prophecies and some of these things that Jesus said, uh, when we're looking at them now, they, they, al- they already happened in the past tense and they're going to happen in the, the future. Um, and this is the case with a lot of, like, with a lot of biblical prophecies. When, when you look at, if you look at 2 Samuel 7, God is talking to King David, and he says, he has this big, uh, you know, promise about the Davidic covenant and this Davidic king that is going to come to the people of Jerusalem. And he says, you know, David, you're going to have a son. That son is going to be the king of Israel. He's going to build a house for me. He will be my son. I will be his father. I will establish his throne, and he will reign forever. So if you read that in 2 Samuel 7, you're kind of left thinking, well, well, especially like now, right? In the 21st, you're left thinking, is that talking about, a lot of what he just said sounds a lot like Solomon, David's son, who's going to build a house 
for God, right? The temple, and he's going to reign from the throne of David. That all sounds like, like Solomon, but then he says things like, I will establish his throne and he will reign over my people forever. He'll be even greater than King David. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound like Solomon. That sounds like some sort of Messiah figure that uh, David was looking forward to further in the future. And they're kind of both true. Right, second, that, that, that prophecy about, about the Davidic king in 2 Samuel 7 is both talking about Solomon in the near term and Jesus the Messiah in the far term. Same thing with texts like this, right? It's talking about Rome besieging the city of Jerusalem and the temple and destroying it in the near term in 70 AD. And it's talking about Jesus' ultimate final return and the end of all things in the, in the far term. So verse 7, so they ask him, all right, well, if, that's gonna, if, if the temple's going to be destroyed, uh, when will these things be? And what sign will, uh, will we see when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, see to it that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, and do not go after them. So I get that you want to know, uh, I get that you want to know when these things are going to happen, when the temple is going to be destroyed, but... Before we talk about how you can know and what you should do to kind of discern the times, let's talk about uh, what you should not do, right? How you will not necessarily be able to know about when uh, the temple is going to be destroyed. And it's not when people come saying, I am, but two things, right? I am he and the time is at hand. So I am he means I am the Messiah. I am Jesus. I am the Christ. I'm the son of God. Listen to me and worship me. I am your savior. There's a lot of false religions and a lot of people that falsely claim to be the savior of God's people. You might say, that's, that's crazy. No one thinks that they are Jesus. Uh, that is, you know, that's, that's a pretty ex- extravagant claim that no one would possibly dare to make. Not true. Google it. I did. So many people have claimed to be Jesus that there's a Wikipedia page d- dedicated to them called list of people who claim to be Jesus. You can spend hours reading about the, I did. <laughs> you can spend hours reading about these guys who cl- claim to be Jesus. Dates back for centuries. You might think, "All right, well Ben, that's but yeah, again, that's crazy. That's like, you know, way back in medieval times." No, the most recent one is a dude my age. And 2 years ago, he got arrested for killing his parents' dog. He's a politician. He's a career politician in South Carolina. Two years ago, he got arrested for killing his parents' dog. The police responded to a call about it. He came out in his underwear, covered in dog hair. And he said, I am Jesus Christ, and God told me to kill the dog because every thousand years there has to be a sacrifice and there has to be, and blood must be spilled. That happened two years ago. So people, so, so a lot of people are going to come saying, I am he, I am, am Jesus. Listen to me. I am the, the person who knows, at right, who, who knows every, I have special revelation from God that no one else has access to. Don't go after them and don't go after the other people that say the time is at hand. Same thing, right? I know I have special access to special, you know, I've cracked the code, right? There's a bunch of guys. You can Google this too, right? People who like think that they know, you know, when the, the, you know, end times are going to come, when the rapture is going to, to be, you know, the mark of the beast and all this, you know, all the, you know, a lot of people claim to have a lot of insight and have a lot of certainty and a lot of things that there is really not a lot of clarity from in scripture. I've shared this before, but it's worth mentioning just because it, it makes me laugh every time. There's a dude named Edgar Wisenant, um, who was a nat, he's a smart guy, NASA engineer, 1988, he wrote a book called 
uh, 88 reasons why the rapture will take place in 1988. So he was certain. He knew it. He had 88 reasons why he was sure. And of course, 1988 came and went. Uh, even as he was like raising awareness for it, uh, he did an interview on the radio and he said, uh, I have the quote, he said, if, uh, if there were a king in this country and if I could gamble with my life, I would stake my life on the fact that Jesus is going to return in September of 1988. Came and went, swing and a miss. You'd think you might, you know, lay low after that for a few years, play it cool. You know, that was a little embarrassing, but let's just try to recoup. No, this dude doubled down. He wrote a book in 1989 saying why the rapture is going to come in 1989. Swing and a miss. Then in 1990, 1991, you can buy these books on Amazon each successive year. Why the rapture is definitely going to happen in this year. By the time he got to 1993, he started to hedge his bets a little bit. Because it wasn't 88 reasons why we can know that the rapture is going to happen. In 1993, he said, here are 23 reasons why it looks as if the rapture will occur in 1993. So he's starting to kind of be like, I don't know, fool me once, shame on me. Wait, whatever. Fool me once. So so, uh, there are people that are going to say, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I know when the end times are going to come. I know. Get ready. This is the exact time. You'll hear of wars and tumults of wars. Verse 10, nation will rise after nation. Verse 11, earthquakes, famine, pestilence. Jesus is saying... Rather than go after every false teacher and charlatan that's going to, you know, make some claim that they are Christ or they know when the end times are coming, instead what you should do is prepare for and brace yourself for and, and uh, you know, be ready to persevere through difficulty and hardship and, and deep, intense sufferings, terrors, and great signs from heaven. Things are going to get really bad. And it's not necessarily that things are going to get really bad at some point in the future because Jesus just got finished telling you don't obsess about, don't be overly uh, concerned with what the exact time is in the future when these things are going to happen. So instead what he's saying is these things are going to happen. You should expect them to be normative during the course of your lives. Some Christians who are really focused on eschatology and the end times and the rapture and the tribulation and all this stuff, they read texts like this and they say, man, that sounds bad. But fortunately for me, I don't have, I don't have to worry about it because it's in the future and I'm going to be raptured already. So that's not anything that I need to worry about. That's not, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is not saying, here are some really bad things that you don't need to concern yourself with. He's saying, here are some really bad things that you need to prepare for and be able to, to endure through and persevere through if you want to follow me. Which tracks with what we're experiencing. Right? Nations rising against nations. Earthquakes. Famine. Pestilence. Global pandemic. Right? All of these, this you know, earthquake in Haiti, Taliban in Afghanistan, right? All of the, you know, all, all everything that Jesus is saying you will experience are the exact things that we are experiencing. The point of Jesus is not that someone other than you is going to suffer at some point in the future, but you don't have to worry about it because I'm going to make you magically disappear before that happens. The message of Jesus is you're going to suffer. Suffering is real. Suffering is inevitable. And, and, and even when you 
turn from your sins and trust in me and become a Christian, you're still going to suffer. Right? You're not going to get a free pass that says you don't have to. Suffering is a part of life as a human. Suffering is part of life as a Christian. And our faith needs to be our faith needs to be able to handle it. We need to have a category in our worldview, in our theology, for suffering. There are a lot of Christians, right? A lot of Christians kind of on the right and the left that, that don't have a category for suffering, aren't prepared for suffering. There are a lot of you know, self-righteous Christians who think suffering is for bad people. Fortunately for me, I'm a good person, so I don't have to worry about suffering. There's a lot of people who identify as Christians that say the God that I believe in would never allow for that kind of suffering. He's too good and he's too loving. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to prepare for it. And when people like that experience suffering like what Jesus is referring to here in Luke 21, they, they punt the faith. They walk away. You get cancer. Well, that, you know, my, my understanding of God couldn't, uh, it, it could not withstand. I had, a, I had a friend who was diagnosed with, with ALS recently. He spent the last two years of his life, guy in his 30s, wife, two kids, spent the last year of his life renovating his house to make it weird, wheelchair accessible and praying and hoping that the Lord will spare him from paralysis and, and death. How do you, how do you hand, like, how do you process that as a believer, as a Christian? How do you, how do you handle that? If you, if you are under the impression that it's God's job to give you everything that you want in life, then you don't. You, you, you walk away from the faith. If you believe that it's God's job to keep you from suffering by any means necessary, it's God's job to do your will, then you just, you walk away. Because you think, Either God couldn't keep me from getting cancer, getting ALS, because he's weak and impotent. Or you think God could keep me from you know, getting, getting ALS, but he just didn't because he's malevolent. He chose not to. And so either way, either God's weak or God is bad, but either way, it's not a God that I want to follow, not a God I want to worship, not a God that I want to believe in. And so Jesus is saying, you are going to suffer, right? If you want to believe in me, if you want to follow me, you need to know going in that you're going to suffer. I'm not promising you that you will will have a life free from cancer and ALS. I'm not promising you that you won't Lose your job. I'm not promising you that people are not going to turn their back on you and abandon you and betray you. I'm not promising you that you'll have a long, happy, healthy life. I'm not promising you that your life is going to look exactly the way that you want it to. I'm not promising you any of that. I'm promising you that I will get you through it. I'm promising you that I will be with you as you walk through these things. Again, uh, it's not just natural disasters and, and kind of these big global calamities, acts of God, like we see in verses 10 through 11. It's also deeply personal 
and therefore deeply painful in verse 12. Uh, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Right? John 15, the world will hate you because they hated me. They hated my father and they're going to hate you just like they have hated me and my, my father. This is what the apostles experienced in the book of Acts. We skip down to verse 16. He kind of uh, gives even more clarity. He says, uh, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You're going to be killed by your own family. Which is about as, as, bad, it's about as bad as it gets, right? Like, if you, you know, if you experience persecution at the hands of a stranger, that's unpleasant. It's not ideal. Right? If you go to the grocery store, some guy you've never met, will never see again, walks up to you and says, you know, I, you're, you're stupid. You're a loser. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't ever want to see you again. Well, you know. I mean, it's not, that doesn't make you feel good inside. But you're also probably not going to see that guy ever again anyway. So what's the, what's the big deal, right? If you go to work and someone that you work with in close proximity says the same exact thing. You're stupid. You're an idiot. You're a loser. I, I don't ever want to see you again. That will be more painful because that person's understanding of you is more informed by some sort of experience or relationship with you. It wouldn't be pleasant. If you go home and your spouse says that to you, you're a loser. I don't ever want to see you again. I don't want anything to do with you. That's devastating. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're, you're not just going to be persecuted by your enemies and by strangers. You're going to be persecuted by people that are close to you, intimately close to you, brothers, sisters, friends, family, parents. And in verse 20, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that its desolation has come near. So now it's not just the temple being razed to the ground. Now it's the entire city of Jerusalem being uh, destroyed and attacked and besieged. It's all the people of God surrounded by all the enemies of God who want to do them harm, which is exactly what happened in 70 AD. Right? The Roman army surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They set up blockades for months, wouldn't allow in any food or water inside the temple or inside the, the city walls. Uh, Jewish people were starving to death. They were dying of thirst. Right? The, the historian Josephus says that many of them resorted to cannibalism. Right? They, they would consume the remains of other people who had died so that they wouldn't starve to death right alongside of them. And then eventually, months later, the Roman army broke down the wall, rushed in. Over a million people were killed in a, very, you know, in a day, in a, in a matter of days. Referring to this, Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee out. If you're in the city, if you're in the region where Jerusalem is, run away. Go to the mountains. Let those who are in the city depart. And if you're not in it, if you're not in the country, then don't enter it. Because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all. This is going to be as bad as you could possibly imagine. Verse 23, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Right? Right? It, it, what would ordinarily be a great blessing, new life in your womb, new life in your arms to raise a, a child, right? that will be um, a curse because it will make you all the more vulnerable to these sadistic, barbaric you know, enemies that are attacking. 
So it's going to come onto the city of Jerusalem in the near term in 70 AD. And that is uh, symbolic of, it's illustrative of what Christians can and should experience in their life. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is how we know that this uh, has relevance for us. That this actually, uh, you know, is speaking to us in one sense. Because we're in the time of the Gentiles. Right? Old Covenant, Old Testament was the time of God dealing with the nation of Israel. Any any Gentiles, the, the, the few Gentiles that interacted with God in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant did so by, by you know, coming in, like Ruth. Right? They kind of uh, entered into the nation of Israel, and that's how they experienced God there in the nation. Now we're in the time of the Gentiles. After Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, all of a sudden, uh, you know, knowing God is not confined to the nation of Israel. It's all over the world. Europe, America, Asia, Africa, South America. God is building His church, and it's no longer confined to the nation of Israel because we are in the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles are going to be marked by unimaginable suffering. Ergo, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, prepare for, expect, and be ready for unimaginable suffering. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, the earth. There will be distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will be fainting with fear and foreboding of what's coming into the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Right? Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, climate change, every, all, everything that you could... Um, right? the, the, the Christian life in a fallen, broken world will be marked by hardship and pain and violence, and war, and turbulence, uprising, persecution, natural disasters. Right? When, you, when you come to Christ through repentance and faith, that's what you're signing up for. A lifetime full of pain and suffering, and then you die. Welcome to James River. That's, that's, what we ha that's what we're offering you. Right? That's what the, the church of Jesus Christ is offering the world. A lifetime of suffering and then you die. Which raises the question, why would anyone do it? Why would anyone come to faith in Christ? Why would anyone sign up for a life like this? I don't know if you've noticed... But I've got a pretty nice thing for myself here. Church, right? I'm successful. I'm comfortable. I don't have to listen to anyone. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to submit to God. I don't have to submit to authority. I can live the life that I want to live. I don't have to, you know, I, I can have whatever I want to have. The reality is, if this life here in this world is all that there is, then that's exactly what you should do. You should leave right now. You should go live your life for yourself on your own at the expense of everyone else. You should maximize your own joy and pleasure. You should minimize your own suffering no matter what it means for God and eternity and your neighbor. But if the gospel is true, 
If Jesus is alive, if you are going to stand before Him, if you are going to give an account to Him for how you lived your life, if you have an an entire eternity waiting on the other side of this life for you, and how you live in this life affects how you experience eternity, if those things are true, then living a life of repentance and faith and costly discipleship and and loving your neighbor with sacrificial uh, hospitality and generosity and, and persevering through suffering and enduring persecution, those are not costs. Those are investments. Right? You are investing in your eternity. Jim Elliott, a missionary, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, the things that you can have and acquire and enjoy in this life, you cannot keep them. And how you will experience eternity... In heaven with Jesus, you cannot lose that. The wisest, most savvy thing that you can do is to invest in eternity at the expense of your life here in this world right now. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, here in this world right now, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As believers, we persevere through suffering, hoping and trusting and anticipating an eternal glory. Right? How good heaven is, how good eternity is, is way better than how bad this life can be. So we persevere and we endure. It also means that, that suffering and persecution now, it's not, it's not a waste, right? If this life were all that there was, then, then anything that, any way that you suffer uh, here in this life is a waste. It's, it's, a, it's folly. You should have done it differently if you could have. Now it's not a waste. If we flip back to verse 13, now instead of being a waste, suffering is an opportunity. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. When you suffer, when you experience hardship, That's an opportunity for you to bear witness about Christ and to bring glory to Christ. Think about it. You know, what what is a more powerful testimony? What is more meaningful? What brings more glory to God? Is Is it the story that says, you know, the underdog story, right? I was down on my luck, but then, you know... Look what happened, right? Started a business. Look what happened. And now my life is great. I'm rich. I'm successful. Perfect life. Perfect family, right? Like, look how great this car is that I, that I drive. How awesome is God? All that does is make people that hear it think that car is great. So I'll, I'll like God because I like that car. What's more, what's more meaningful? What's more powerful? That testimony. Look how great my life is and look how God, how great God is because of it. Or hearing the person who says, I just got diagnosed with cancer. And look at how great God is, right? Because knowing Jesus is better than being 
cancer-free. Having my sins forgiven and being reconciled to God is better than being cancer-free. Right? It's not, my life is perfect, how awesome is God? It's, I am in a wheelchair, my wife and kids are at this moment wrestling with what their lives might look like if I'm not here with them any longer. But even in the midst of that, I trust God because God is my Father. I'm going to persevere in the faith because I trust God. It's not, look how much God has blessed me. It's, come mourn with me. Come mourn with me as I bury my child who died. But help me to trust God and persevere in the faith in the midst of it. That's a far more powerful testimony. A far more Suffering is an opportunity to bear witness about Christ. Far better opportunity than success or than health and wealth and comfort. The worst, most terrible, most terrible horrible things that you could ever experience in this life can be the greatest opportunities to trust Christ and bear witness to Him and bring glory to Him. You might say, I don't know if I can do that. Right? Like, if I run the, the you know, if I run the, the scenarios in my brain, I don't know that I'm even going to have the strength and the wherewithal and the fortitude to persevere in the faith in the midst of the kind of suffering that you're talking about. And Jesus says in verses 14 and 15, that's okay. I will keep you. I will hold you. Right? I will give you a mouth and wisdom and none of you like, I will give you the words to say. I will give you the faith to believe the words that you are saying. Verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. So that's, that's God's sovereignty and our responsibility back to back verses in the same breath, right? Verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. I'll keep you, protect you. I won't let anything happen to you. Verse 19, your responsibility. Endure, push on, be, like expend effort to trust God and stay with God and walk with Him. And then down in verse 27, after all that suffering, after all that persecution, after all of that difficulty, then we will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. One day, right? After the times of the Gentiles, after this, this uh, you know, season that we're in, that's marked by suffering and persecution and hardship that we have to endure through and persevere through. At some point at the end, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be a million years from now. One day, Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to redeem His people. Jesus is going to save them. All of the suffering that you persevered through will not be for nothing. Because Jesus is going to save you and reward you. He's going to gather His people to Himself. He's going to redeem them and take them home to be in His presence under His rule forever and ever. All the sin and all the rebellion in this world, all the evil that has been done to you, will be dealt with. The cosmic scales of justice will be balanced finally, totally, completely, once and for all. We persevere through suffering and persecution, not for no reason, not for some ambiguous 
you know, reason that we're not sure why we're doing it. We do it because one, it's a, it's an opportunity to bear witness about Christ. And two, because our eyes are fixed on the horizon of when Jesus comes back and we receive the reward for our suffering and we're reconciled to him for all of eternity. I just want to share two brief thoughts as we close this morning about suffering and persecution and persevering until Christ returns. The first is that God calls us to persevere. God calls us to endure. But He doesn't call us to do it alone. He calls us to do it in the context of a local church family. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This verse in Hebrews is talking about Luke 21, right? It's talking about those times when the day is drawing near. The return of Christ is drawing near. Suffering is increasing. Difficulty, persecution, hardship is increasing. The day of Christ is drawing near. We are called to persevere through suffering. And how do we do it? By not neglecting to meet together. By stirring up one another to love and good works. We're in this together, right? Christianity is not a an individual sport. It's a team sport. Your responsibility is not just to walk with God and persevere. Your responsibility is to walk with God and persevere and help other people to walk with God and persevere and to be helped by other people so that you can walk with God and persevere better. Right? You have a responsibility toward the people in your church and they have a responsibility toward you. And the main way, like the main way that we uh, stir up one another to love and good works is, is very simple. It's by not neglecting to meet together. Coming to church, exercising the ministry of attendance in your local church is the simplest thing you can do. It, but it is the most profoundly impactful thing that you can do. Because there's this synergistic, galvanizing effect that when the people of God come together, right? Corporate prayer is, corporate prayer is easier than individual prayer. I don't know if you've realized that, but it's hard to pray all by yourself sometimes. You get distracted, you get tired, you get bored. You do, but if you come together and you pray together as a, as a body, corporate worship, is, is, it's, there's something different that happens in your soul when you worship God with other people. Hearing the Word of God in the community of faith as opposed to sitting by yourself, there's something different about it. Meeting together is the primary way that we can stir one another up toward love and good works. It's the primary way that we can encourage one another. And encouraging one another is the primary way that God intends for us to endure together as we see the day drawing near. So persevere through suffering, endure through persecution by coming to church. By, by, by attending church, worshiping at church, encouraging other people in your local church. That's the first thought. And the second... First thought is, 
persevere and endure through suffering and persecution in the context of your local church, because that's how God intended for it to be done. And the second is persevere through suffering, endure through persecution, because when you do, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus who did it for you. Sometime this week, take your Bible, read Luke 21, verses 5 to 28, and consider what in this text is Jesus saying is going to happen in your life? What in this text is Jesus calling you to persevere through that he himself has not already done for you? Suffering, loss, Hardship, pain, persecution, betrayal, abandonment, loneliness, false accusations. How, how in the world could Jesus, how, how could he in good conscience call his people to walk through a life like that? What, what right does Jesus have to call us to live a life like that? Because when he does, Jesus is not calling you to anything that he has not already done. You're going to lose your temple. It's going to be raised to the ground. It's going to be destroyed. Everything that you hold dear, everything that you love, your security blanket, right? Uh, this, this building that you love so much is going to be destroyed and leveled to the ground. Jesus lost everything that he had in heaven for you. He came and lived a life of poverty and hardship, right? You're going to experience persecution. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. You're going to be falsely accused, delivered up to kings and governors. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. You're going to be betrayed by your closest friends in the, the confines of the 12 people that you trust more than anyone else in the world. They'll hand you over to the authorities to be put to death. That's what happened to Jesus. You'll experience violence. Jesus was beaten until he was unrecognizable. He was tortured and hung on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God for you in your place so that you don't have, so that you could experience forgiveness of sin, so that you could experience the assurance of eternal life, so that the Holy Spirit could live inside of you and give you new life. Everything that Jesus is calling us to do here in this text, he has already done for us. So that we can be saved, reconciled to God, and know Him for all of eternity. And now, in view of what Jesus has called us to, or in view of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and in view of the assurance that Jesus is going to come back one day and save us and keep us and bring us to Himself, in view of all that, Jesus is calling us to respond. By turning from our sin, trusting in Him, persevering through suffering and loss and persecution and betrayal, and walking with Him in the context of the church until He comes back. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> You have called us to a life of suffering and persecution. And Lord, we, we repent of our entitlement that causes us to um, forget that or resent that. 
Lord, instead of uh, resenting or denying the reality of suffering, we pray that you would empower us to suffer well and persevere. Lord, we pray that you would help us to leverage suffering as an opportunity to bring glory to your name. We pray that you would help us to persevere through suffering by anticipating your return in power and glory. We pray that you would help us to persevere through suffering by leaning in to the church and gathering together. And we pray that you would help us to persevere through suffering by remembering your death and your resurrection for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.